0: Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name, this special Sunday morning that we come together to worship God in a special way and to commemorate this this uh, shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ again. I appreciated those songs that were sung, and um, certainly, uh, certainly it's my desire to be nearer to Jesus, and I would certainly assume it's your desire as well. The message this morning. I have entitled the message <clears throat> "The World's Most Defining Moment." We have events in life that we commemorate, um, and that's that's good and right, and we should. We have some things that we commemorate personally, some things that we commemorate collectively. Um, each of us has a birthday, if we're alive anyway. We have a birthday, and many of us celebrate uh, anniversaries and so on, wedding anniversaries. And then there's personal things that we, I don't know if we celebrate them, but we think about them from time to time. Um, I don't think there's probably a May goes path, the month of May, that I don't probably at some point think of uh, a time in 1995, thank you brother, that um, my wife and I loaded all of our earthly goods onto a rider truck on a U-Haul trailer, and we came west to the prairie, and um, we've been here ever ever since. And um, what would happen if we wouldn't have done that? And that's something that we think about sometimes, and uh, to tell you the truth, I don't know. I'm not sure what would have happened. I have no way of knowing that, but it's kind of a pointless uh, pointless thing to ponder because we don't know that. But it's, it's something that was a defining moment in our lives, right? And then you, when you look at the world scene, um, you see events that come and go and transpire that are defining moments in the course of this world that if one would think about it, if the, if the thing had turned out differently... It, things would be so vastly different, most likely that we can 't really even comprehend the scope of how different things would be i don 't know uh, as I was sitting here pondering this um, and, and i don 't know why my mind thought of this, but I thought of the um, of the um, the battle there in fifteen eighty eight where the uh, English and the Spanish duped it out there, and uh, if you remember the the Spanish had the The English outnumbered by far, and they had better battleships and all these things, and there was really no reason that the Spanish Armada shouldn't have overcome the English. And humanly thinking, that thing didn't turn out the way it should have. The English, uh, the way it turned out, overcame the Spanish, and because that happened, England remained Protestant, and Spain turned their tails and went back to their Catholic land. Had that not turned out that way, had Spain overcome England, most likely um, the um, the day was such that if, if Spain, being a Catholic country, would have overwhelmed England, they would have transformed England back to a Catholic country. <clears throat> now, let's fast forward that. Most likely Spain would have been the dominant power that would have um, uh, settled the New World. The United States here as we know it. So if that would have happened, would we be here speaking English to one another today? Would we even be here today? You know, our minds just go and we don't know the answer to these things, but we can assume, safely assume that things would be vastly different had that not taken place. And there's many other things that we could, we could talk about. What if the colonies had not succeeded in their quest to free themselves from the rule of England? What if the Confederacy would have actually won the Civil War? What if the Axis powers would have overcome the Allies? You know, these are big deal things that happened in world history that we say, wow, you know, if it would have turned out differently, it'd be so different, so different. And while we don't necessarily, as Christians, celebrate these particular things that basically is a display of the basis, of human nature. And when we consider the carnage and loss of life and things that go with these particular world battles and so on, we shake our heads. But we can nonetheless conclude that there was a God behind that thing, orchestrating that thing, that it turned out the way it did, and we are where we are today because of those particular events turning out the way they did. Now, there's something that, as I pondered that, there's something interesting about all of these particular events that we uh, we talked about. Um, I wonder, and I'm not going to make you answer this question, but I wonder how many of you, if I would have just said, what do you know about the Spanish Armada? I wonder how many people would have known that this morning. There have been a few of you. Mike Beckett probably would know. He's a history buff, but... A few of us, we have said, "Well, you know, we remember studying about that in social studies in like seventh grade, but boy, I'm not quite sure if I remember what that was all about." <clears throat> and and yet, as I explained to you, it's a big deal—a really big deal how that turned out. <clears throat> now, the point I'm trying to make is that happened in 1588, which is um, over five—no, not quite 500 years. It's it's uh, it's 400 some change. But a long time. It's been quite some time since that took place. And because it's been so long ago that it took place, and there's been so many equally significant events or events that maybe overwhelm that one that have taken place since, that the significance of the event I don't think is fully understood or appreciated. Same thing could be said for July 4th. I mean I believe a year and two and 10 and 50 and maybe a hundred after the um, the the colonies uh, had their way here and they they succeeded in the rebellion against England um there was a a very keen understanding of what happened there and I believe the celebrations quote quote of that um probably had more meaning today I would be willing to uh guess that if you just went into some random street of St. Paul on July 4th and said, hey, exactly what happened here? Uh, why are we celebrating this today? I'm imagining you'd get a fair amount of dull looks. Uh, July 4th has come to a, a place where all it means to people is a day off work and barbecue and fireworks. and we, and, and beyond that, people really don't know what happened. And again, why is it? So much time has elapsed and the meaning has worn off. I have a set of encyclopedias at home that um, they're, I don't know, they were probably printed in the 60s. They're very old. I think we got it from the school here. I think they were the old school. Somehow we fell heir to these things, and I think Darla actually has them in the attic currently. But when they were on our bookshelves, um, it was of some interest to me that the amount of, of, uh, the amount of, What's the word I'm looking for? The segment of those books that was given to the intricate details of World War II is a fat chunk, big fat chunk. You go back here and you pull out the encyclopedias, if they're still there anyway, in the school today, you have a skinny little section. And And again, I'm here to say I think the reason is is because time has elapsed, the significance of the thing has worn off, And if you take it another hundred years, you'll probably have a paragraph in in some encyclopedia a hundred years from now, perhaps, if they still have encyclopedias. But the reality is this is how we as humans are wired. I think we generally have a difficult time appreciating what we don't experience very first-handedly. Or because a distant memory and the magnitude of the events just seem to wane. This morning, I would like to look at three historical events in the Bible that have that greatly changed the course of history and uh, just ponder these things just for a while. Turn with me to Genesis 3 for the first one. For the first defining historical moment in the Bible. Now, I should say that I'm not going to hit all of the defining moments in the Bible because there are many. We're just going to hit a few, and I'm not sure they are the most significant. I know one of them is the most significant, and maybe two of them are. This one may be being one of them. But my point is we're not going to hit them all, but we're going to hit three of them. All right, so let's start reading here in chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, "Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave unto her husband also, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves apron, and they heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shalt not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrows and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of thy face face, shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And I'm going to stop reading there. There's a single verse we can look at here that we just read, and that is in verse 6. Where it says the woman listened to the serpent and after she considered what he said, she looked at that, that fruit there on that tree. She noticed that it was pleasant and she, she began to notice that it was also desirable. And she thought, well, you know, why not? Why not listen to what this snake has to say today? And so she took that fruit and she ate it. And that bite, that, that instant is when the course of history Was changed in a way that I don't think we can fathom or truly appreciate. It threw humanity into a chaos that it has never recovered from, and humanity has tried from that day forward to undo the issues that have that this event brought, and they have not succeeded. You know, we are born into a world that is cursed. We live in a in a world that um, many of the results of that curse. We, we have learned to accept as normal. I have learned to accept that if I want to grow a field of corn, I'm going to have to work at it because there's going to be weeds that are going to come up and choke that field if I don't take care of those weeds. And yet I just expect that to be normal. Um, and one thing I don't agree with and it's, it, I think it is a, um, it's a fallacy that's out there and, um, you hear it. And that is that the problem with our soil is it's out of balance. If we could just get that thing in balance, the weeds wouldn't grow. I want to tell you something. I'm not telling your soil isn't out of balance. It might need a little balancing. But I don't care what happens. You let that soil go, and it will grow weeds. Because the Bible says it's going to grow weeds, and it will grow weeds. I don't care how balanced it is. So if you have this idea that your soil is out of balance, and, and, and for that reason it has weeds, you're a tricked person. Okay? It's, it's going to have weeds. So we work hard to make a living. People die from cancer. We have heart disease, and we have all kinds of other problems. And we have come to expect that childbirth is just a painful experience. Apparently, at one point, it would not have been. I don't know that Eve conceived and bore a child before the fall. I don't believe so, that we have record of. But uh, apparently, that's how it would have been. And for those of you that have been through that, you know it's quite the opposite. And then we go into Genesis 4, chapter 4, and we are quickly given the reality of how relationships are affected in a fallen world. Just a few verses into chapter 4, and we have this Cain and Abel scenario playing out, and we have Cain rising up in a fit of anger, and we have the first murder committed on the earth. And the thing of it is, as I said before, we have come to accept this as absolutely normal when really the earth has lived in an abnormal condition for basically almost the entirety of its existence. God didn't intend for it to be this way, but because of our inability to look at a tree with some favorable fruit, that's where we are today. We can't imagine a world without these things. Now, I'm going to go down a rabbit trail just a little bit here, but it's a point that has to be made, and it's it's, it's a point I'm going to make here this morning. You know, Eve, when she looked at that fruit that day, um, it seemed like a reasonable thing to do to follow that snake's advice and take that fruit. He had planted doubt in her mind. She accepted that. And she said, "Well, you know, I think he's right after all. I, I look at this fruit, and it looks as good as this tree over here that I'm allowed to eat off of. Now, why would God say we couldn't eat this?" She said, "Well, you know, I'll just experiment. I'll, um, I'll, um, I'll take a bite once. Let's, let's see how that goes. You know, we'll just take a little bite. And, and I don't know how that all went that day. Did she, did she take a little bite and quit, or did she take a little bite? And she kept on eating." And I don't exactly know what the fruit looks like. If you're like me, you picture it as like a Macintosh apple, but I'm not sure that's what it was. It was something that was enticing. I know that. But I feel like, I'm fairly sure, that Eve rueed that day the rest of her life. I am fairly sure she did. She looked back with regret on that day, even though it's not recorded, if, if she was a normal human being, and I have a feeling she was, she looked back on that and regretted that more than one time in her life. I have a feeling she did it every time she had a child, probably. She, you know, what could life have been like if I wouldn't have done that? And that's a challenge I would like to leave with all of us today, but especially you as youth and children. Your life is before you. And I don't think as youth, at least I don't think I fully grasped it, the, the monumental trajectories that you are placing in your path by the choices you make today are absolutely, I don't think you can comprehend it until you're miles down the road and you look back and you say, wow, because of those choices I made, I am where I am today. And if they're good choices, you're happy you made them. If you're, if they're bad choices, you will live you regret that day. And I just want to put that out there for your thought and for your consideration. Another very, very good example, just a few chapters later in, in Genesis is the account of Esau. He comes in one day and he's tired and he's hungry and he's cold and his brother's fixing soup. And his brother being the conniver that he was said, tell you what bowl of soup for the birthright. And Esau, in a hasty moment, says, absolutely, deal, done. Give me the bowl of soup, you can have the birthright. Jacob took him up on it, and the Hebrew writer tells us that Esau later regretted that to the point that he sought his birthright carefully with tears, and he was never able to regain it. Folks, we have to think about these things. What kind of choices I make today could potentially alter my life to the point that I would carefully seek to regain what I had with tears and be unable to regain it. We call these things watershed issues, and rightly so. So the bottom line here is we have a very sad defining point in history in Genesis 3 that permanently scarred the world to this very day. And I don't know that we have a day that we necessarily celebrate that, but we certainly have a reminder every day of our lives that this is the world we live in. And God set up the sacrificial system in the Old Testament to constantly put before his people, you have a problem, you have a problem. And here is how you take care of that problem. You shed blood, you sacrifice these these animals, you do these various things. And they did that for decades and centuries and millennia to remind them of that event that happened in the garden that they could not undo. They absolutely could not undo. Turn with me to Exodus 12 for the next event in the course of history. And there's many in between here, but we're going to go to Exodus 12 now, because I think this is um, relates to our subject this morning. And I'm going to start at verse 29. I'm going to read to verse 36, Exodus 12. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. For the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, And all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh arose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. And there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel and go serve the Lord as ye have said and take your flocks and your herds as ye have said and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land with haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in the cloths upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. And we're going to stop reading there. But here we have this condensed account of what ended up being the culmination of the ten plagues, and God's fierce wrath poured upon the Egyptians to show his mighty power, and his favor upon the children of Israel— to show them his power as well and their utter helplessness to, re- to free themselves from the slavery that they had endured for 400 years. Now, if we would have read the beginning of the chapter, which we did not, but uh, I'm going to pick a few things out. It's interesting here to me that the instructions of the celebration of the thing was given before the event took place. So Detailed instructions here in the first part of chapter 12 of what was going to happen and how they were supposed to commemorate this in ensuing generations. And the event hadn't even happened yet. But there is some uh, there is some very detailed things here that I wish to just pull out quickly. In, um, in verse 14, it talks about how that the Lord wanted this to be a memorial to them throughout their generations and they should keep it for a feast forever. That was the instruction. Never forget it. In fact, it would seem like in chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 2 here of the 12th chapter, that we now had a new time that the new year started. So I'm not sure when it started and stopped before or if these things were something that they kept track of it of it all. But God said, this is the day today, the first day of the Feast of the Passover is going to be the start of your new year. From now on, That's that's it. And I think, I think it was very fitting. It was such a, such a miraculous thing and such a big event and so momentous in the children of Israel's lives that it was, it was totally proper that we're, we're even going to call it the beginning of the new year. This is it right here. In verse, uh, four to 11, you have some very specific instructions on how they should prepare the lamb that they would slay and uh, how they would uh, eat this thing. Um, very specific instructions. A lamb without blemish. They should uh, not eat it of it raw nor sodden, but roast it, and so on. Verse uh, 22 talks about how they should take the blood from this lamb and put it on hyssop, and they should strike the uh, lintel on the doorposts. We, uh, we understand that procedure, don't we? If you go to verses 43... And um, ensuing verses, I'm just going to read these. You have some very specific instructions on who could partake of this commemoration. The Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, "This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof." Okay, so that was the first thing. If you aren't, if you aren't part of the of the one of the tribes, uh, you shouldn't eat this this Passover. But every man's servant that is bought for money, when he is circumcised, then shall he eat thereof. So if if you were a slave, a man's slave, and you were circumcised, then you could. A foreigner and an hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. And all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Now there is a verse in Numbers chapter 9 and verse 13 that uh that talks about the how non-participation in this feast was a very serious infraction and was not taken lightly by the Lord. And I'm just going to read that verse to you. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. So if you weren't on a trip somewhere, and you jolly well were in the camp or the, the uh, your, your hometown, whatever it was then, and um, you were clean, in other words, you weren't ceremonially unclean for any reason, and you just chose not to show up to the Passover, God said that person should be cut off from the people. That's how serious the commemoration of this thing was. Now there's a question we can ask. All this detail, all this instruction, and we could go into the book of Numbers and Leviticus and, and you have this repeated several times, some you know, like, like God didn't just <clears throat> didn't didn't just say this one time. It's something that was repeated several times. How regularly did the children of Israel keep this Passover? Actually, not very regularly at all. Not at all. In fact, um, if you would read through the scripture that we have given to us, um, if you go just by what we have in the scripture, I'm not sure that it's recorded, but once or twice in the Old Testament, they actually kept the Passover. Now, I'm not saying they didn't, but it certainly feels like from the reading of, especially through the books of Kings and Chronicles, it feels to me like, it was very sporadic at best. You you go into like 2 Chronicles 30, we, uh, we have Hezekiah during his reign. It says that they kept it, but it seems like from the reading that it was an unusual event. It's like they didn't do this very often. Now, if you go after the captivity, after the, the Jews went into captivity there in Babylon for 70 years and they came back again, it feels like they kept the feast with much more rigidity and regularity than they did before the captivity. And as Ellis pointed out in his uh, Wednesday evening uh, talks, um, when when Jesus' parents went into uh, Jerusalem there and they lost Jesus in that, they were there to to uh, keep the Passover. That's that's what that was all about. So it's, it feels like that afterwards that it was much more regular event. But in the Old Testament that we have here, not so much. And I think the truth is that Israel was indeed delivered from a very brutal physical captivity. But just like I mentioned before, there, time goes on. Time just moves along. And suddenly the ensuing generations are like, well, what was that? We didn't live through that. We didn't see these things. We didn't, we didn't see God's miracles. You know, did that manna thing really happen? I and mean, what about that? You know, did, did it really happen the way we were told? I don't know if they if they thought those things, but I think that's what they subconsciously thought. And after a while, like, why should we bother? Why should we bother doing these things? And they had been duly warned by Moses and Aaron, or I'm sorry, Moses and Joshua, that um, this would happen. They would turn from God. And when they turn from God, why would you celebrate something that you no longer serve? So while the captivity that I talked about in Babylon did cure Israel of this lack of keeping the Passover and so on, it seems that from the events that surround Jesus with his interaction with the Jews and the Gospels, it seems like there still was a true heartfelt, or I should say there was not a true heartfelt um, appreciation for for what actually happened that day in Egypt. And most importantly if they even did get it if they did grasp the 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 um, the monumental event that that was it didn't mean much to them because they still were currently under roman rule they may not have been in the, under the uh, egyptian thumb but they were now under rome's thumb and so they still weren't really physically free and they for sure were not spiritually free and no matter how much they kept the feast, no matter how much they sacrificed their, their lambs and their goats and their bulls and all these things, it, they absolutely were not able, under the law, to be free from the events that had happened in Genesis 3. Which leads me to, to the third defining moment. Let's turn to Luke 23 now. We could have turned to various passages here, but I chose the book of Luke, Luke 23, and we're going to read verses uh, 26 to, oh, probably 49, and they led him away. They laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. And Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. And they shall begin to say to the mountains, Follow on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? There were also two others, malefactors, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they then said, Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also which with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, Thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. And when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the people that were come together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. And I'm going to stop reading there. As I mentioned, the Jews were in bondage to the Romans, and they had looked for a deliverer for years. We, we understand that. And they had tried to wrest themselves from the oppression of Rome various times, and they had had some limited success here and there. But by and large, they had not. And Jesus had come, and he had walked among them, and he had attempted to explain to them that he had come to set them free from the bondage that they didn't really even realize they had. And I'm going to read to you out of John 8, very familiar verses. Jesus said to the Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. Now, now catch that. That was the Jews that believed in him. He says to them these things. Continue my word, you're my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, these are the disciples that believe in Jesus, and here's how they respond. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall, ye shall be made free? Now catch the irony of that. They're under the the Roman thumb and they're saying, we're not in bondage. Jesus answered and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. That's a powerful statement. You commit sin, you're the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Why could these Jews be free indeed? It is because Jesus had the ability to, if, if they would allow them, and it still holds true today, his power could overcome that bondage that sin held them servant to. He said, you have so much, I have so much more to offer you than what your experience is that you don't understand it. You don't understand that the problem is yourself and your inability to shake the bonds of sin. God knew that we had this problem, and he knew our inability to remedy this problem. And he knew that starting way back whenever Eve took of that fruit. But he had a remedy. The remedy is in Romans 5. God commended or God showed his love to us. In that, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hebrews 9. But Christ being an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place rather than once a year as the high priest, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, this morning, the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't just slow sin down. It just doesn't make it tolerable. It just doesn't cover it. It purges us. It purges us. And we are free to live above sin. We are free indeed. We no longer need to grovel in sin and make excuses for it. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if we find ourselves groveling in unbroken patterns of sin and we have no power to rise above that, number one, it is not God's fault. He, he has given you ample provision to rise above that. And if we make excuses and for our sin that we live in, it is an insult to the power of the blood of Christ and is a shame on us when we choose to live that way. There is nothing celebratory about it if I choose to live in unbroken patterns of sin. Now, much like the pa- Passover, the commemoration of this event was given before the event took place. Turn back to with me to chapter 22. And we're going to read a few verses here. Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good men of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished, there make ready. And they went and found, as he said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire, I have desire to eat this Passover, that ye with you before I come. And I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto the people saying, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new Testament, which in my blood, which is set shed for you. And I think we will stop reading there. Like I said, it's very unique that the institution of this commemoration of the death of Jesus, he gave instructions on how to do that. And there are some questions that each one of us must ask ourselves this morning, personally. Do I understand... Do I truly understand the privilege of what it means to live on this side of the cross? Do I understand the cost of that? I will confess that I think that I don't know that I, that I can. I want to. I desire to. But I don't know that, that I can actually grasp the cost that Jesus went or the, 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 what these events cost Jesus, the trauma that he endured. Can you imagine the absolute aloneness that Jesus felt? His disciples forsake him and so on. Can you imagine the shame, the spitting upon, the crown of thorns, the the purple robe, the mockery, all these things that he went through, and all the time knowing that he had the power to set these guys straight. He could have done that, and he chose not to do it. And all the while knowing that he had not done what he was accused of doing, and he was betrayed by his own disciples. These things, I, I don't know if I can fully grasp, humanly, what he went through. Do I appreciate this the way I should? And, and if I do, how do I show my appreciation for this? I have three things that I think we should do to show our appreciation for this, for this event today. Number one, Romans 12.1 says it very clearly. I beseech you, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, By the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or which is your logical service. This makes sense. This makes sense, Paul says. And here's how we do it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And by the way, none of us will renew our minds all by ourselves. That won't happen. By the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Folks, do we grasp that? Do we grasp what that verse just said? You know, we're all about proving things. We like whenever we're in an argument. We can prove the argument. We, This is the way it was, and I can prove it to you. The only way we're going to prove to the world and to each other that we know what the blood of Jesus Christ has done for us and can do for them is when we live in a way that is not conformed to the world. It is transformed, and it's not transformed because we just do all the right things because we can. It's because our mind has been renewed to a point that we want nothing to do with what the world has to offer anymore. We've come out of Egypt, and we are in Canaan, and we wish to reside there and stay there. Has there been any of us paying any attention to the news this past week? I would assume probably some of us have been. But what we saw this week take place up in the Twin Cities could jolly well be us without a renewed mind. And we and we, we have to come to grips with that. We have a white police officer that was convicted of second-degree murder of a black man. All right? And we say that is so far into us, there's no way. Folks, that could be us. That could be, either one of those people could be us if we did not have renewed minds and did not live so. I think we don't grasp where sin could actually take us if we allowed it to. So now what do we have? We have a man, a white man whose life is ruined, and we have a black man that's dead. And here's the odd part about it. Had that verdict come down differently, they'd have probably burnt the city down. We, we just know that's the way that's the way things were ramping up. But because it came down the way it did, we have this celebration in the spirit, spirit of revenge that is not Christ-like at all. There's no way that a person without a renewed mind can win in this situation. I don't care what the verdict is. I don't care anything about it. The thing was not going to end well, and it has not. And the point I'm trying to, to impress on us this was a high-profile case, but these things happen daily, somewhere, and it's all because of what happened in the garden. And it does not have to be that way. And I don't care how many laws we pass. I don't care. I, I don't care what. There's a lot of hubla out there today about how we're going to fix this problem we have in this country, and it won't be fixed outside of Jesus Christ. You and I know that this morning. Another very real test that shows my appreciation for Christ's sacrifice comes from the book of First John. John says that a person can say he loves God, but if he does not love his brother, how can he say that he loves God? How can he say that? He said, actually, that's a false statement. If you say you love God and you don't love your brother, you have just stated a false statement. Jesus, furthermore, told us that we must love our enemies. The fact of the matter is, I think sometimes we do better on loving our enemies than we do our brothers. How much grace and love can I extend to you as my brother this morning? That is why, people, it is important that whenever we give our testimonies, we say, I am at peace with God and I am at peace with man. Because that is the test. That's how we know if we have peace with God. If we're not at peace with man, we're not at peace with God. Can I honestly say I am doing God my best by God's grace to show love to you as my brothers and sisters? Peter says, Seeing ye have purified your souls by obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Having purified your souls by obedience, another rendering says, to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren, love one another earnestly from the heart. Just don't make it a facade. Make sure it comes from the heart. And lastly, the third way that we show our appreciation for what Jesus did is simply doing what we're doing this morning. Jesus said, I want you to do the simple thing. I want you to occasionally, and it didn't even tell us how often, and that has varied greatly from group to group, church to church, and we're not into that um, exercise this morning to try to determine how often it should happen. That's open for discussion. Here we do it twice a year. So that good, bad, or otherwise, that's what we do. I think, personally, I shouldn't say that. I think it's a good thing. I think there's such a thing as overdoing a thing, and I think there's such a thing as underdoing a thing. And in my humble opinion, and I assume it's your humble opinion as well, it seems to me that uh, twice a year strikes a a good balance, And, and I'm glad we do it. It's often enough that we don't forget, and yet it's not so often that it becomes a routine. So it's Jesus said, I want you to break bread and I want you to drink wine together until I come in remembrance of me. And he suggests that he's going to just put it on hold. He said, I won't do this again until you're in my kingdom. And I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to that day when we can celebrate this in some way, in some heavenly way that I don't understand currently, this, this event, this event. You know, the events of the garden were very devastating, changed the world forever. The deliverance from Egypt was indeed miraculous, no doubt about that. But the death of Jesus that crushed the effect of the events in the garden is the most profound thing that happened in the, in the history of the world, and it deserves our commemoration. That is why we are here this morning and it is my fear that as over 2000 years have passed that it has become routine it can it can become very routine and i'm here to challenge us this morning as we participate in this event in this commemoration event one more time let's think about this anew in a new way let's think about the cost of it let's think about what it has done for me personally and let's not allow the time that has elapsed between that event and today's date to lessen our appreciation for the shed blood of Jesus.